Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got former Andy Kennedy staffer Bracken Ray here for our normal end of the week hoops conversation. The week that was for Ole Miss, losing Deshaun Ruffin, winning at LSU, losing at Florida. What went down in the final couple of uh, possessions there? And honestly, Florida being somewhat of a decent example of Ole Miss's flawed offensive philosophy in terms of how this roster is constructed. A lot of different stuff, big picture stuff too, as we get into it every week. And then kind of a glance around the SEC, looking at a uh, struggling LSU team, what Mississippi State needs to get to do needs to do to get to the tournament, Kentucky with a huge win in Alabama. A lot of different stuff. It was a big weekend of hoops, a great weekend of college basketball in general. So hit a lot of different topics there with Bracken. And then uh, I've got like a short Auburn thing at the top before we get to that. So loaded Monday show. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. If you're in the wagering game and you're not using Skybox, you're probably losing money. If you prefer to win money consistently versus lose money, you should sign up for Skybox. That's just skyboxsportspicks.com. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month-long, season-long, sports specific sports centric or all sports i'd recommend just go with the year-long all sports pass it'll pay for itself and then some these guys are the real deal they're the best in the business and they're really the only way to profit long term no one's winning money consistently over a long period of time off your own dumb brain you don't want the bookie texting you you want to be texting the bookie you need to use skybox they got a lot coming a lot coming down the pipe their nascar package if you buy the nascar work NASCAR package is coming up. I believe that gets released at the end of the month. You had a preseason race out in LA the uh, the other weekend. If you use the promo code NASCAR that you hear on this podcast, you get 30% off. For all other purchases, use the promo code RIPPY and you get 20% off. That's just the beginning. Skybox has their Super Bowl package coming out. They're giving you two free plays right here. You ready for these? Get a pen, write them down. First kickoff, not to be a touchback, plus 135. And Cam Akers, under 65 and a half rushing yards. Boom. There's two free props. They crush the Super Bowl every year because they have all the information. You need to go check out Skybox as you uh, get ready for the big game. And then I'm getting their NASCAR guy at the beginning of next week to help me explain or explain NASCAR to me like I'm four. So that'll be fun. We did that this summer, and uh, I had a great time with it. Outside of that, they're just destroying college basketball, 30 and 14 over the last five days leading up into last weekend. And believe their NBA modeling that they're still testing out and giving out for free is hitting at 65% So uh, at, on the over. So a lot of stuff going on at Skybox. You need to use those guys. They're the best in the business. Check them out. If you have any questions about the promo code stuff or package, uh, shoot me a DM and I'll get you in touch with the right people. But uh, never a better time to use the fine folks at Skybox. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Go see Greg. Absolutely the best butcher shop in the world. Best place in Mississippi to get meat. If you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats. Right now it's a 16-ounce 16 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. 
That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Just show Greg proof of subscription. Tell him you're there for the Rippy Wright special. And uh, he'll get you set up. And then you need to go find everything else you love about LBs and that everyone loves about LBs. All kinds of different cuts, great sausages, filet burgers, lane train special, bacon wrap filet, fresh seafood. So much great stuff at LBs. It is truly the greatest local butcher shop of all time. You don't want to go to Kroger or Walmart or one of these other places where they really don't care if you have a great grilling experience or not. Greg actually wants to make your grilling experience great. Greg eats grilled, cooked food all the time. What does that mean? Everything has to be cooked. Uh, no kidding. I just meant he's not a restaurant guy. He goes home every night and uh, comes up with some sort of awesome creation that he makes himself. And that's how he takes his approach to grilling and LBs as well. He wants to make your experience great. Check him out. Glugstat location coming soon. He's going to serve the greater Jackson area out there in Glugstat. So uh, that's coming this spring, I believe. So be on the lookout for that. Check them out. LB's University Avenue for now in Oxford. Okay, before we get to Bracken Ray, I had a couple of uh, Auburn situation thoughts at the top, just because who is not talking about this Auburn situation right now? What is actually happening at Auburn? Well, officially, no one seems to know what the hell is happening at Auburn. There was a report that surfaced, I believe, last Thursday night, maybe it was Wednesday night, that Brian Harson's immediate future was in jeopardy at Auburn. Uh, this was coming on the heels of National Signing Day, where they had a good early December, right, early signing period in December, but kind of needed to close on a couple targets, and I don't think actually signed anyone. So it's on the heels of that, but truthfully, this didn't really have a whole hell of a lot to do with that. I think that just added on to it, but that report surfaced, and what does that actually mean? No one knew what to actually make of it. And then, you know, you've had the Board of Regents or whatever their, you know, equivalent to that is, I believe, met, didn't give a whole lot of details there. I believe there was a statement or something said in a presser that was like, we're trying to separate fact from fiction. Well, like, if you don't know exactly what they're investigating, what the hell does that actually mean? Kind of the same thing continues through the weekend. A lot of rumors about, you know, off the field stuff, kind of similar ish in the Hugh Freeze neighborhood. I don't really know how else to handle it than that, unless uh, without just saying something completely stupid that I don't know is true, which I'm not going to do that. But rumors in that type of thing that don't necessarily have much to do with football. But it's also mostly the fact that Auburn has had a mass exodus of staffers and players leave. I believe Auburn had 19 or 20 guys leave um, off of the, and then Derek Mason, defensive coordinator, leaves. Your offensive coordinator leaves, and then the new offensive coordinator you hire, Austin Davis, former Southern Miss quarterback, uh, is walks away, relieved of his duties. I'm not sure what the deal was there, less than 40 days on the job without ever, you know, attending a practice or something like that, which would seem important uh, if you're going to be the offensive coordinator. Auburn didn't even make it that far. And Derek Mason goes to Oklahoma. Derek Mason, not the greatest head coach, tough job, very good defensive coordinator, goes and takes a $400,000 pay cut to become the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma State and stare at Mike Gundy's mullet every day. Hmm, that doesn't seem normal. An SEC defensive coordinator taking a $400,000 pay cut to go to a Big 12 school? Hmm, that doesn't seem great. Given everything else that happened, they had 20-something players leave, I believe, which is well beyond the threshold of the scholarships that you can replace, right? If you have guys go in the portal, you can replace up to seven of them per that new NCAA legislation. So, like, if you have five guys leaving the portal, you can get those five scholarship backs, scholarships back. If you have 15 guys leave, it caps it at seven. You can only get seven of those back as it currently stands. 
the way I've interpreted that rule. I'm pretty sure I have that right. So that's not great in that sense. And then, you know, everything else is just kind of up in the air. Outside of that, there's a lot of rumors flying around. They lose the Iron Bowl. Does any of this happen if they win the Iron Bowl? Probably not to this level. They end up six and seven. I believe they lost their last five games after starting six and two. It's a mess that's been brewing a long time and was palleted or quieted down a bit by a decent to good early signing period. I think because, you know, Auburn was in a weird spot. There were these rumblings sort of, if you'll remember, toward the end of the year leading up to the bowl season. And some of that had to do with the Alabama vax mandate, which, as you guys know, not my favorite content in the world, COVID and vax stuff. But you had that ultimatum or deadline or whatever it was that public employees of public universities had to be vaccinated by like December 1st or whatever it is. And there was some smoke about that potentially being a problem. And then they lose five in a row and they lose the bowl game to Houston. And is his job safe then? Granted, that was after the early signing period. But losing that, losing the Iron Bowl the way it did, it was not great. Then early signing day comes. They have a decent decent haul. And uh, quiets down a little bit, though there was not necessarily uh, everyone being content and then losing to Houston in that bowl game in the fashion that they did didn't help. So now that we just got all the mundane stuff about what's happened on the surface and things that we can see and in front of us down, all of that I would say is being used as ammunition against Harson to try to achieve something that a certain faction of Auburn boosters wanted to achieve. Well. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is a coach that goes six and six during his first regular season and maybe doesn't have the greatest close to recruiting and has a bunch of roster attrition and staff turnover attrition on the surface without other context needed. That's usually not a guy who's worried about his immediate job status and not making spring football, you know, at a hyper competitive place like Auburn, if things go six and six or how worse or even seven and five in year two and it's not looking great in year two then I could see it you're probably like I could see Auburn making a move they're an impatient fan base that's an impatient school I think Nick Saban's driven them a little bit nuts it's a dysfunctional booster network which is kind of the genesis of this that we'll get to in a second I could see that happening but on the surface a guy that went six and six in his first year and didn't haul in the greatest recruiting class in the world shouldn't be wondering if he's going to have a job next week Uh, let alone, you know, an hour from now. And that's part of the reason this podcast is dropping a little bit later today. One, I had to work. Two, I kind of wanted to see if something would pop off in this. And it hasn't yet, at least not from a public standpoint. So all that being said, why is this actually happening? Why is this happening to Brian Harson? You know, you could believe some of the more uh, salacious stuff that's surfacing on message boards out there, none of which I've been as has been officially reported beyond the university and people may be exploring to fire him for cause and get out of their buyout. But look, if we're being real honest here, unless you're just a complete um, head in the sand, maybe you're a Harson loyalist, maybe you don't believe any of that type of stuff happens. What I'm getting at is I doubt he's a completely innocent of any wrongdoing, nefarious behavior whatever the case may be. He's not a saint. He's not an angel. And so I don't think he's helped his cause in that regard. But again, is that enough to fire a guy for cause after his first year? I guess depending on what it is, maybe, but it seems somewhat doubtful. So what's actually driving this? What's driving this is Auburn's dysfunctional booster culture. If you'll recall when Brian Harson was hired uh, all the way 
long time ago, like 380-ish days ago. Last year is what I'm getting at. There was a coup amongst of sorts amongst Auburn boosters. I don't really know how to describe it any way other than that. To one, get Gus Malzahn out of there. But I think the writing on the wall was there for Malzahn, whether I think a certain group of boosters really wanted Malzahn out of there for, you know, about two years. You remember when he had just signed the extension after winning the West the second time in 2018 or whatever year that was, they go like eight and four the next year. And there's these ridiculous rumors and reports surfacing that Auburn's got the money together to pay Gus's $37 million buyout. Everybody old enough to remember that. Maybe you're not. It happened. Look it up. That type of thing was happening again, but Gus hadn't given them, you know, any reason to, you know, not pull the trigger on it. Like the, Gus's time at Auburn was coming to an end and the on the way the on-field product was going last year, even it being a COVID season was, you know, justifiable. It was not a crazy thing to eat whatever Malzahn had left in his buyout and fire him. If he'd have done it the year after he won the West or whatever that season was, I think it was 20. 2017 or 2018 is the year I'm talking about. They win the West for the second time in 2017, but you remember they lose the SEC championship and they lose the Peach Bowl. So they go seven and one and win the West in 2017, but finish 10 and four. So he gets that big extension. You know, the next year, I think that the completion of the 2018 season, the buyout's like $38 million, $37 million or something. And all of a sudden, Music City Bowl three and five in the conference uh, is not great or not good enough for Auburn, and they're already wondering how they can get out of this gigantic buyout. So you had those report surfaces, like the money is there. And I, I think it was in the mid-30s, if I'm remembering it correctly. Point being, he goes 9-4 and four in 2019 and 6-4 and four in 2020. By the time that 6-4 and four season hits, it's plausible and certainly reasonable to move on from Gus Malzahn at that point. He had not won 10 games or more in a season in four years at that point. Every other season outside of his first – and his fourth was eight wins or excuse me, not eight wins or fewer with one nine win season in 2019, sprinkling in in between. It was reasonable. But got to remember that first year after they won the West in 2017, there were a bunch of really rich boosters at Auburn that were trying to figure out a way to get him out immediately, and it didn't succeed. Fast forward, they get him out. The next part of that plan, by all accounts, it seems like that they wanted to hire defensive coordinator Kevin Steele, Gus's defensive coordinator. Read into it what you want, depending on some of the reports at the time and that have surfaced after. Uh, Kevin Steele did not seem opposed to the idea of him being the Auburn coach. And there was some stuff there that he sort of played into this function even toward the end of the Gus era. Um, you know, I think sort of felt – I think Gus would probably tell you if you put true serum in him that he felt like Kevin Steele may have undermined him a time or two during those final years. So uh, Kevin Steele, not exactly opposed to the idea of a bunch of boosters wanting him to be the next Auburn head coach, to say the least. Well, what happens after that? They make this push. They make this push. Let's not have a legitimate search. Let's promote Kevin Steele. We got Gus out of here. Let's get this thing done. Well, it doesn't get done because Auburn AD Alan Green, who was, I believe, two years in the job. I believe he's hired in 2018 from Buffalo. He wasn't really about that life. Why? Because athletic directors are largely judged on who they hire and who's the most consequential sport. What is the most consequential sport? Football. You don't really get too many swings at that. You've screwed up two coaching searches or two coaching hires, and you're kind of done pretty much any job. 
unless your name's Ross Bjork, and then you just go inherit the largest athletic budget in the con- budget in the country. But in normal circumstances, you're not really getting a third time. And this was this was Alan Green's first hire at Auburn, his first SEC football hire. That's a big deal and a critical juncture in his career. That's a huge you know, landmark milestone. Who was your first hire when you get your first huge big break job? Well, guess who was not privy to a bunch of rich boosters telling him who exactly he had to hire and he couldn't really conduct a real search? That would be Alan Green, Auburn AD. So Green spends the next, like, I don't remember the exact time frame timeline, the next week, two weeks, however long the coaching search happened, trying to conduct a legitimate coaching search while also fighting off this coup from a bunch of very rich boosters that to not hire Kevin Steele. And honest to God, if he hadn't have been so new on the job, this is just me speculating. I don't know anything about this. I wonder if the coup would kind of would have come for him and successfully ousted him if he wasn't a year and a half or two years into the job at that point, slightly less than two years into the job at that point. I imagine if he was, you know, in year four of a five-year deal, which I think is actually the case for Alan Green right now, it'd been a little easier to oust him. Well, they weren't able to do it. And he successfully wins the coup, which I don't know the exact batting average of this because these things don't play out in public, but, you know, the win percentage of the AD versus the angry boosters can't be that high. And their longevity at that said university after such a fight can't be very, uh, very long either. But to his credit, he wins. But the problem is, is because of that and some of it independent of it, the search gets a little weird. We'll put it, I don't think they landed their first option. We can just throw that out there. I think that's pretty obvious. I think Brian Harson at Boise State coming to be the head coach at Auburn was not their first option. But given everything that went on, it wasn't a terrible hire at the time. And, you know, I, you, you could make an argument it's still not that. I don't think he's the greatest fit at Auburn, um, you know, for a lot of reasons that are both on and off the field related. But, you know, it was a legitimate hire. He won – you know, 10 games or more for four straight years at Boise State up until the COVID season, and he goes five and two. He think he won the conference three times. He won a Fiesta Bowl in 2014. Brian Harson was a good coach, a legitimate coach, even if he wasn't quite as good as Chris Peterson at Boise. So it's a legitimate hire. It's a bit of an odd fit. He didn't very have much experience at all. I don't think any experience recruiting the South. So it was a bit of an outside-the-box hire, but it was perfectly legitimate. Well, so he wins. He gets the Harson hire through. Guess who's not happy about that? The rich boosters at Auburn who wanted Kevin Steele because they give a lot of money to the university and they didn't get their way. Well, fast forward a year later, where do we sit? Well, Harson had a very pedestrian, very average first year. He had a large exodus of players leave his roster. He had a large amount of his staff leave the roster, including a defensive coordinator to take a pay cut to go to a Big 12 school. All of that put together, these guys are pouncing at the opportunity to finally figure – like, I don't know if, it, if they end up with – if Harson if this ends up with Harson losing his job, I don't know if they end up with Kevin Steele. But, you know, now I guess part two of said mission would be to get Brian Harson out. Those boosters that did not want him in 2020 and 2021, got around, right around this time, shocker, still don't want him. And you know, does winning the Iron Bowl change that? I don't really know. But – that to me is what's happening here, absent of everything else, because Auburn put out just, you know, they talked about we're trying to separate fact from fiction. We're investigating the football program to see what's going on. Well, they never said what they're investigating. And fact of fiction from what? What does that pertain to? Fact or fiction regarding what? No one's actually said what they're investigating. Auburn put out a statement today 
And I'm about to read this statement. Bear with me because it says nothing. Statement from Auburn University. The Auburn administration is judiciously collecting information from a variety of perspectives, including our student athletes, and swift, moving swiftly to understand any issues in accordance with university policies and procedures. Decisions regarding the future of Auburn and its athletics programs, as always, are made in the interest of our great university and in fairness to all concerned. We do not make institutional decisions based on social media posts or media headlines. First, uh, first, first thought about this statement. One, I don't understand why they capitalize athletics when talking about athletics programs. PR, comms guy, assuming he went to school with journalism, don't really get that one. Maybe it's a style thing I don't understand. Not really the point. What did that, thing, what did that statement actually say? Absolutely nothing. You know what it really sounds like or what it, they're really trying to say? They're trying to say absolutely nothing because they don't know exactly what they're investigating. And if they could, I guess, be completely honest, that statement would say, we're trying to look, turn over every single stone until we find a way to fire this guy for a cause to get out of his buyout. We're also doing that while trying to figure out what the hell is going on and why these rich boosters that actually run our football program are so angry and want him out. And if there's anything that can be due to appease them to not make this happen right now. Generally, I think that's probably what they're trying to do. So where does all this go? Well, none of this ever ends well. Like, what, what kind of futures odds could you get on Brian Harson being the head coach and happily the head coach at Auburn in three years? What's the odds he's the head coach at Auburn next year? You get the point. These things never turn out well. When it goes toxic and the dudes with the money in charge are against you, you are not long for this world. Now, Brian Harson uh, sounds like, has played into that some with some of his program management, we'll call that, um, stuff. I think he's given them, you know, a little bit of ammunition to make this attack a little more valid and pack a little bit more of a uh, punch and an opportunity to be successful in the end. Some of that self-inflicted. Now, is this fair to Brian Harson, all things considered? Without knowing a ton about the situation, I would say no. But – I think this goes back to Auburn having a wildly dysfunctional booster culture that or really this is an example of any university that has a wildly dysfunctional booster culture. Things like this happen. You get chaos, you get dysfunction, you get firing potentially and making a new head coaching hire in February, long after the normal coaching cycle and coaching carousel has happened. You get very weird things happening, which is what this story is. And so I think this is a combination of a guy who was never a fit I think this is a combination of a bunch of boosters and probably mostly a group of boosters at a place that is notorious for kind of having the booster mafia control the university a lot more than some do, not getting their way and using this as an opportunity to finally get their way with what they wanted last year when this hire was originally made. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. And I think they're going to keep digging until they find it. Or best case scenario, he somehow survives this, ends up as the coach next year, barring going 12-0 and or 11-1 and and making the playoff, he is axed. But I doubt it gets to that point. It sounds like Brian Harson's time will come to an end at Auburn sometime in the next week or two, which is interesting to say the least because – I don't know who's taking that job. I think they could get someone. I'm not naive to say no one's taking this. They're not going to end up with anyone good. But they better have an idea of who they want it to be. Is it Kevin Steele? I have no idea. I believe Kevin Steele has just now been hired as the defensive coordinator at Miami. He take the Auburn job if offered. 
of course, because he's not an idiot. So maybe that, but like when you do something like this, you better have a move in place because now, given the way the coaching carousel is and where we are in the cycle and really just the college football calendar in general, you're really going to look like a laughing stop if, you, if this move is successful, the boosters get their way, but then nobody wants your job. Now, it's an SEC job. It's an SEC West job. It's also the only SEC West job where you have to play the entire West plus Georgia every single year with Nick Saban sharing a state with you and you being compared and contrasted to him every day of the week. That's not the easiest place to succeed. It's not the hardest. They got a lot of money. They got a lot of culture. They got a lot of tradition, but it's certainly not the easiest given the current state of uh, Auburn and Alabama football and who their permanent East opponent is and what Georgia is right now. So when this move is made, ultimately, I'm curious to see if they have a move made because if this coaching search gets weird again, I don't really know where you go. And this could set the Auburn football program back a couple of years. I think the day and age of like this program now set back a half decade because they had NCA investigation or they had a weird firing or a booster coup like this or over. You can rebuild a program pretty quickly in most cases when you have this kind of capital at this type of university in the SEC. But it could set them back for a couple of years because, again, unless they have an idea of exactly what they want to do and then, move, and then decide to move for it, uh, move forward with it pretty swiftly, you're only going to end up with more dysfunction and the same results on the field. You just might like the guy at the uh, manning the sidelines a little more than they apparently do Brian Harson because it is their choice. And that is kind of the ultim ultimate uh, essence of all of this booster culture. They want to win, but I think they want to get their way more than they want to win. And right now, Auburn's not winning, so they damn sure want to get their way because they run the show there more so than any other place let's get to bracken ray on uh the week that was in sec basketball all right we now welcome on former andy kennedy staffer bracken ray here for our weekly sunday hoops conversation Ole miss loses 62 57 in overtime in overtime at florida in a game where we saw the return of jarkel joiner some it was an interesting game it wasn't necessarily a fun game to watch we'll get into some of that look around the sec as well what's up man how are you Man, not a whole lot. How about yourself? Not much. Did y'all get snow this week? So we had this snow annual snowmageddon in Dallas, and uh, really that kind of affected the weekend. I actually saw Mavs Sixers on Friday night, got lower-level tickets for like 60 bucks just because no one was wow. coming because, like, the snow and the ice and all that. So kind of the shutdown city this weekend. What was the weather like there? Yeah, we had um, a little bit of snow, like very light snow, and the roads ice for a little bit too. It's one of these things where like the trash people don't come, you know, once the, the roads are ice, and so it kind of puts a fork in everything, but um, nothing too bad. I'm, I'm kind of uh, – January was one of the coldest Januaries in Nashville in like history, I think, so I'm, I'm already ready for March, April to roll around. Yeah, I'm just, I've decided, I used to say I like the seasons and I like cold weather. I'm firmly just anti that now. I was with a group of dudes last night. One of our buddies had like some of his hometown friends in town. One of the guys was from Sarasota and was just not having it with this cold weather. And he was like, yeah, it occasionally gets in the 50s in Sarasota. I'm pretty freezing when that happens. I was like, I probably need to move there. I am a, not a huge cold weather guy, but I guess it, uh, it allowed me to see Joel Embiid for pretty cheap. So that was nice. There you go. Um, let's just get right into it with the Ole Miss stuff off the top. Ole Miss loses 62-57 at Florida in a game that we see the return of Jarkel Joyner, uh, you know, immediately after it's announced that Deshaun Ruffin's out for the year. 
I guess we should just go back even farther because we haven't talked since the LSU game either. So let's just kind of sum up the week as a whole. Starting with the Ruffin news, they get a win on Tuesday night in Baton Rouge, really like an ugly, gutsy win that we were texting about. And then, you know, it seems like the this team, like, finally kind of catches a little bit of a break. And then, like, even their biggest, like, win of the year in some respects, uh, getting one on the road, just bad news immediately follows. It sucks for Ruffin because it really seemed like he was starting to come into his own. No doubt, no doubt. And, you know, what a game he had on um, Tuesday as well against LSU. He was on fire early and Ole Miss just in general. I mean, that's the hottest I've seen them in in a while, especially in the first half. But really, really tough blow for him. Um, you know, he was really starting to come into his own. We've, we've talked about it a lot, like from an effectiveness standpoint, field goal percentage, three-point percentage. You'd like to see that go up and I actually think he finishes around the uh, rim pretty well, but he does get some shots blocked that he, uh, lead to transition buckets. But with all that being said, I mean, this guy was playing at a super high level, especially for a freshman. Um, probably one of the most fun, you know, first half performances I've seen uh, out of him, you know, this year as well. And Ole Miss, the second half of that game got really dirty, but it was a gutty win for them. They found a way to get it done with really like six dudes towards the end of that game in a pretty hostile road environment. You know, LSU has now lost six out of the last seven, but that's a pretty talented team as well. Um, so that was a, you know, huge, huge win for them. Last week we kind of talked, you know, they had the three games at home and we were like, hey, if you win at least one, you know, I think that's somewhat of a success. Um, for this week it was the same thing. Just go win one out of two and it feels like, You've, you've at least achieved something there. I mean, obviously there's not a ton postseason stuff, but just trying to – from a looking forward standpoint. And so that was a good one for, uh, for Ole Miss to get done on Tuesday. But like you said, rough and going down. Pretty brutal blow. And kid, he seems like a great kid who definitely could be, be the face of this, you know, program and brand for the next couple years. So that was tough to see. Yeah, it was. And it was really a remarkable performance. Like you don't – you don't say a lot like that was fun to watch when like as it pertains to this basketball team, particularly this year, but like he was a lot of fun to watch. He was borderline unstoppable in some parts. I mean, the guy had 19 points in 20 minutes and it was interesting. You mentioned, you know, you'd like to see some of the outside shooting get better and he takes four threes in this game and he made two of his first three, if I'm not mistaken. And once he made the second one, it seemed like whoever was on him, he had a couple of different guys on him and it seemed like they were, not confused as to what to do with him, but like the fact that they had to kind of respect that more seemed to lead to some opportunities for him to get by guys and get going to the rim. And like, that's a guy, if he develops a somewhat consistent outside jump shot, you know, and is respectable from three really becomes, I hate using the word unstoppable, but a really, really tough assignment on a nightly basis. We haven't talked about that a ton as it pertains to Ruffin. Is that like, when he gets to campus as a true freshman, he struggled shooting it like from the perimeter this year. Is that something like you just assume is coming, like that he'll add in the next year or two? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of situational, right? There are guys who never – you know, people just think that like college coaches can increase somebody's three-point percentage like three to five percent overnight, and that, that's just not always the case. For him, though, what I do think is of note is he's had two or three different injuries and one to his hand. Yep. Like how, how how much of that, you know, plays a factor in. So, you know, I don't know that he'll ever be a guy that's, you know, in the in the low 40s, but I think he could end up being a good um, 
you know, perimeter shooter down the road as well. Tough deal for him. One more thing to note on him, though, you know, he was kind of starting to figure out the offense and when to break it and when not to, which I think some Kermit players have had trouble with because it's as structured as it is, you know, sometimes people want to run through the offense to run through the offense rather than run through the offense to go get a bucket. And I, I think he was finding a good happy medium there as well. And him and Morell played really well together too. I would have loved to see their like, you know, points per possession when they're together and when they're separate. And I bet it's a pretty, uh, pretty big gap. It's a great point you make on kind of understanding the offense and when to break it and when not. One more thing I had on the shooting, you knew a lot more about Ruffin in high school because you followed this closer. What was kind of the MO on him as a as a jump shooter in high school? Or was he just so – because, you know, a lot of those kids, they're so dominant, and it's kind of weird to say at his size, they're so dominant and so much quicker than dudes, they don't even really have to have a shot. And you see that, right. you know, the further they go up, like it becomes a little more paramount that they need to develop one. And, like, the, I guess the example I was I was thinking of, and this is a more extreme one, John Morant, when he got in the NBA, particularly his first year and a half, first two years, like he was good, but he wasn't really a threat to shoot the ball at all. And that's clearly something he's added this summer and now, or over the last summer. And he's still not like a great shooter. I don't know exactly what he's at. I meant to pull that up before we started recording. But he like makes – you have to respect it now, and he's borderline unstoppable. That's kind of what I had in my head when I was asking that question about Ruffin. But the question I had to package all that into a question, what was he like as a shooter, as a prospect? Yeah, absolutely. So when I looked at him offensively, um, the thing that I noticed is, hey, he's a volume guy from the perimeter. I did. I don't think. Um, I didn't think when he came out of high school he was ready to be a three-level scorer yet. What does that mean? Around the rim, mid-range, and the three-point shot. I thought. I think the mid-range has room for improvement. But if you notice, it's something that Brian and TD um, added to their game a little bit too. You don't want to shoot them unless you can make them mid-range because statistically, you know, we, we went over that stat a week or two ago about points per possession for long mid-range shots. But there are time and places to get to your spot to shoot that. Um, so I think that's something that he can add to his game that's, that's, that's not there a ton. Um, but from a perimeter standpoint, he's a volume guy. So he's a guy that, you know, if could ever, to your point on like John Morant, he could ever be like a 35 to 37 percent three-point shooter. Now the scouting report is completely different on him, and it, it would make him super hard to guard, but also expedite how much he opens that offense up for other people as well. Absolutely, and the point you were making to kind of start, uh, double, like go back to what you're talking about when when to break the offense and when to stay within it. Another thing I noticed. So he's you you hit on this earlier. He's a smaller guy, obviously. He's holding the torch for all of us that haven't hit the six foot mark. But he you mentioned him getting shots blocked that lead to not always easy baskets in transition, but pretty optimal transition opportunities for other teams because like a block shot is essentially kind of like a lot ball turnover, right? Particularly if it ends up, you know, in the wrong hands from the offense's perspective. He seemed more over the last two, three games, I'd written this down over pretty much on each one of them. He seemed more inept or I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. He seemed more crafty in drawing contact against larger defenders. I don't know what his free throw numbers are. I'm, I'm about to pull that up right now. But he seemed smarter in his ability to draw contact when he gets to the rim, which is hard to do for a small guy when you have a guy that's going to be bigger than you defending you most every time. But his free throw numbers had gone up from the beginning of conference play, and it seemed like that was kind of a small thing that he was figuring out, which – 
is a big thing in the long run because that's, you know, six, seven points a game sometimes. Yeah, and that's one thing that I think he was good at, that he's always been good at, even going back to high school, is the ability to use his body to finish and, you know, kind of double clutch in the air. Um, he likes to use the backboard a lot of times um, to protect himself from a defender, so finishing on the opposite side of the back the backboard when somebody's trying to block his shot. I think it's, you know, one of the things that's his biggest strength. Like I said, my only, like, constructive criticism on him is there are times, too, where he's got to uh, be more intentional with it because he'll get shots blocked to, you know, 10, 15 feet down the court that can lead to transition buckets. But he's very crafty um, and has a lot of balance as well, which helps him from a finishing standpoint. So I knew I, this was there was some correlation to this. He His last four games – he had had at least five uh, free throw attempts in all of them. And in two of those, he had had t- at least uh, 10. And then before that, he had only had one game in which he had more than six. And that was when he scored 17 against Dayton. It's a smaller sample size, but like you're talking this first five games SEC play, one, six, three, two, four, and zero. So like it seemed like there was a bit of an adjustment period as particularly as like the competition kind of, I guess, ticked back up with conference play and he was really kind of coming into his own in that sense as well. It's a brutal, brutal loss for Ole Miss, but we were both thinking about it. We were texting about it from the standpoint of you figured rough and not, excuse me, not rough. And Joyner was probably like on the shelf for, I don't remember when that six week timeline was announced, but it didn't just seem optimistic that he was going to come back, you know, at all, particularly if the things were going well, but they, he was back out there on Saturday and he didn't look, completely healthy but he looked okay I thought do you think this is just the happiest coincidence in the world or something kind of the forces not forces coming into motion but they kind of had a conversation like hey if you're if you feel like you're good enough to go we need you what do you think went into that yeah I mean with those conversations it's you know you've always got uh, the players involved the coaches involved and the trainers involved and sometimes too the players family is involved on those injury conversations and who's ready, who's not to. Players are always, I say always, the majority of the time going to be a little more emotional in it. They're going to have a little bit more of an emotional take of wanting to play. Um, You know, for Jarkel, obviously, you know, it's hard to evaluate how he played last night because it's first game back. It was interesting to me that he didn't start but played 40 minutes. Um, And, you know, I think that kind of speaks to the depth of this team right now that, I mean, they just don't have enough pieces when you're trying to win on the road to kind of ease somebody back in. Um, so, you know, he, he played 40 minutes. I think that for him, um, I guess really this team in general, it's there's not a ton of ball handlers right now with roughing out. So I think they've got to continue to find ways to handle the ball but also get him on the wing a little bit as well, which is going to be a tough thing with the personnel they have currently. Right, and it wouldn't be as tough if you had a healthy – uh, Deshaun Ruffin, because that was the thing we never really got to see. We got a small sample size at the end of the non-conference slate and a little early into conference play. I can't remember. Actually, I don't even know if Joyner played a conference game. I'll have to go back and look that up. But point being, we haven't gotten to see them in gel together over you know any sort of significant stretch this season. And it's a shame that we won't get that until next year. And you're right. Like, that would have been as big of a struggle as it's been offensively. You just kind of wonder how different it would be if you could get Joyner off the ball with the healthy Ruffin and them two kind of playing together with Ruffin being the more ball-dominant guard. Your 40 minutes uh, point, I'm glad you went there because I'd had that written down to go to as well. How When you're an athlete at that level 
and you've been out as long as you've been out. Like, I know it's hard, but like, how hard is it to do something like that? Because in an optimal scenario, you're not playing uh, Jarkel Joyner 40 minutes in his first game in over five weeks or whatever the actual date is. Like that, just like from yeah. up close look, how hard is that to do? Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of got to think about it just like um, imagine the kid that comes in at the end of the game, like with five seconds left or whatever, and you're down three that hasn't played the whole game, but it's a three-point shooter and goes in, you know, and you're just kind of cold like that. It's kind of the same thing, you know, sitting out for six weeks or whatever it was. Obviously, the kid's probably been getting shots up and all that, but I think the really tough part about it that gets underestimated a little bit is the conditioning piece. Um, a lot of people are like, you know, while you're hurt, you can do the water treadmill or ellipticals or whatever to stay in shape. And that's totally true from a cardio standpoint. But there's a difference between being on a treadmill and SEC basketball, moving up and down the court, you know, quick tri- uh, twitch muscles, uh, cutting, all that stuff for, for 40 minutes. And so the conditioning piece of it is the one that a lot of times can be tough for guys um, as well. You'll see guys that come back and you know, they, they've got to get hydrated or IVs at halftime, that kind of stuff when they get back because it, it just shocks your body a little bit when it's the first time you've done it in a couple months. It's basketball shape. That was more so what I was yeah. looking at than, like, even the touch and feel of, you know, playing in the rhythm of a game. Like, like I've, I've watched a couple games since Clay Thompson's come back, and, like, he looks like a dude that hasn't played basketball in, you know, three years. Like, it, right. it, but the hardest part from a touch standpoint, but, like, the hardest part of that to me would be conditioning. Like, like you mentioned, you get cardio, whatever, but running up and down the court in a high-level SEC basketball game is just a different kind of shape than you're going to get sitting on a bike or really doing anything. And I imagine to some degree, you're not going to get that in an in-season practice, are you? Like, I imagine most of the stuff to get dudes in shape happens before the season. Yeah, this this um, this time of year, it's hard to do that. You're playing every three days or so. You're traveling a lot. Um, a lot of coaches out there, once you're in conference play, especially with a shorter bench, you try not to go bone on bone just a ton. Um, you can't go bone on bone, meaning, you know, physical stuff. You're doing more draw sets, draw runs, you know, continue to do skill development uh, to get going, running plays and all that. But you can't, you know, play two games a week and then have four or five practices where you're doing lob scrimmage, bone on bone action. It's just, it'll wear these guys out. So, you know, for a guy like Jarkel, they probably had something personalized to him from a conditioning standpoint that was off of what the rest of the team was doing uh, to keep him in shape. But it, you're right, it's a really tough thing. And I think here, as we get, you know, deeper into February, you'll start to see his effectiveness go up just from, you know, the natural transition. He scored, what, nine points, I think. I want to make sure I have this right. Stat broadcast is screwed up. Excuse me. He had seven points, three of ten shooting, one of seven from the field. That would be about what I expect him coming back for the first time in six weeks or whatever the case may be. As it pertains to the Florida game itself, Ole Miss, I thought, was pretty good in the first half. And Matthew Morrell was, had a really nice first half. He finishes with 14 points, four of 16 from the floor and four of ten from three. And you're sitting there thinking – what the hell are you talking about? Well, in the first half, he was three of six from field, uh, from three. Uh, every field goal he had in this game is three-point range. But, like, he was confident in his shot, and, like, they were getting good shots, it seemed like, within the rhythm of the offense. 
he goes 0 of 6, 0 of 3 from 3 in the second half. And, like, Ole Miss is just not good enough offensively to have a guy like Morrell that plays that many minutes. He played every right. minute of the game. He didn't sit out. He played 40 minutes. I was going to ask you that because I thought that was the case. He didn't sub out once. Is that right? That is correct. He played 45 minutes. I mean, when you talk about this team's lack of depth, it's three dudes and they're trying to piece the rest of it together. Well, actually, it's their starters and them just trying to fill holes the rest of it, which I know you can probably relate to with some of the teams you've been on through the years. It was like, I mean, you're talking Joyner 40 coming off an injury where he missed five weeks, Morrell 49, Rodriguez 34, and Brooks 39, and then everything else they're just trying to figure it out. That's not an optimal scenario no matter how you draw it up. Yeah, it just shows you the uh, the level, you know, Morrell, the conditioning he's in. I've played the City League game on Tuesday night and probably played <laughs> about 30 minutes and then went to the Preds game afterwards and was cramping the whole time. I was, and then when I went to sleep as well. So it just goes to show you there that um, these guys are in crazy shape. But that's – that you know, on the Morrell piece, though, it kind of brings up t- two points. Um it shows you that his effectiveness may have gone down because of having to play high minutes. But something – I'll actually give, give props to my dad on this. I've thought for a while, but you and I have never talked about. Is there something to shorter benches for Kermit's team being a positive because guys get into um, a rhythm more. They're not getting yanked as much going forward. Like one thing I was really interested to see is – I did not expect Jarkel to play. I'd not heard, you know, Kermit mentioned it in a press conference that they may get him back, but I hadn't heard anything that he was ready yet. I was so stunned you, when I saw it. Yeah, so when you looked at that, I thought there was going to be like six dudes play, and obviously from a talent standpoint, not a great lineup, but I wondered what does this look like with only one, maybe two subs coming in the game um, with Jarkel Ruffin and Robert Allen all not playing. And if you kind of go back, even looking at the, for Kermit's first year, he had TD and Schuler and Brian on that group. But outside of that, there were just a bunch of other guys on that team, right? A lot of, a lot of mid-major dudes that probably shouldn't be playing at the SEC level. So their bench towards the end of the season, especially once February came, was pretty short. And I wonder if there's something to that with Kermit having not less depth, but a shorter bench that kind of helps this group mold and uh, get into a rhythm more, especially on the offensive end of the court. I think it's a good point. And what's, what I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast, but I know I've asked you about this through like texts or just us talking. Kermit loves, and I think it's a habit that uh, I would say some would like for him to get out of. He had, particularly that first year, because it was one of the first things I noticed about his in-game coaching philosophy. Neil and I would actually talk about this a decent bit during games. He loves the impulse sub when a guy screws up. Like, there's, a, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that first year when there's a defensive lapse, he turns around to the bench and is like, get him. And, like, it's almost, in some ways, allowing – you talk about guys getting into rhythms, playing more minutes, not being, you know, not necessarily fearful, but, like, having to think about them getting pulled from the game. Kermit does that a lot, and he's gotten a little bit better about it, but I wonder how much of it is the fact that he just doesn't have very many people on the bench to go to. In that sense, it's yep. kind of like saving him from himself a little bit as well. And here's where I will be critical on that piece is what I've never understood. We talked about it earlier in this podcast today of, hey, you've got some guys that, play, that run the offense just to run the offense and not to score. Where, I, where it's always been head-scratching to me is, 
why are the guys getting pulled out for defensive lapses? <laughs> that, like, Florida for the most part. scored 62. I think LSU was uh, 72. So, I mean, in a, your two games this week, you know, average 66 or so on the road. I mean, you'll take that, right? So that's the one that I've never um, that I've never understood. There was a game earlier this year. You'll know who the opponent is. I'm my mind's going blank, but nobody scored like the first eight minutes of the game, and then the first bucket we got back cut on, and Kermit went to his bench. I think it was I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, they've scored two points in eight minutes, and he's you know they're taking somebody out for a defensive lapse. You gotta. I think that's one of these things with the his criticism on evolving to the times, so to speak. I think that's one of those things that you got to understand. Like, hey, you can get you can get on these guys' ass, so to speak. But if they're playing at a decent to solid level, the one mistake thing, unless it's an effort, you know, unless he thinks there, there's not effort or the guy's motors isn't high, Sometimes that can mess with the guy's rhythm, and I think it translates to the offensive end, which is where this group is really struggling. Absolutely. And Ole Miss would have had – like, they were up nine, I believe, at halftime. I think it was like 30 to 21. And I'm sitting – it was weird. I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is a pretty damn good offensive half for them. But, like, that's kind of judging it through the lens of what this team has been this year, right? Because they score 30 at halftime, they have a nine-point lead, but – I mean, we're talking about them shooting 36% from the field. They were pretty good three-point. The perimeter shooting was what saved them in that first half, particularly Morrell. You had Fagan make two of the three that he took. They were 6 of 15 from three for a 40% clip. But the second half was just awful. I mean, how many field goals would you guess Ole Miss made in the second half? Uh, seven? Five. <laughs> Wow. I've, and Ty Fakin was the only one that made it three. Bragg, they went – they were, what, through two media timeouts. I believe their first field goal in the second half came with 10.58 remaining in the half. I mean, yeah, you're talking about – so, that's like – we, we beat this offensive thing into the ground. And, like, I don't want to continue to hit it – like, beat a dead horse here. But you're talking back-to-back SEC games where they've had nine-minute stretches more or more in each game without a field goal. From, I guess from, for, the, for the casual listener out there, like how would you describe just how uncommon that is at this level of basketball? Well, it kind of brings up something that you and I have talked about a lot. Is, um, it is very hard at the college level to score if you don't have talented guards. Yep. I know that that's a very <laughs> basic take, but – the reverse of it is same damn thing about Florida and have for a, a few months now. Um, I don't think Florida's guards are very talented. Castleton was really good for them, um, but they, they're not a good offensive team as well. And, you know, I think right now they're projected – I'm not sure what their net is. I don't think they're a team that can win an NCAA tournament game, though. There's nothing this year that's shown me that they, they can really do that. Um, and so it, I think the piece to it here from offense, like you said, went nine minutes without a field goal, which is crazy, is like you've got to have playmakers offensively at the guard spot that can go get to their spot, uh, get downhill, beat guys off the dribble one-on-one and create. Or if they can't do that, they've got to be able to spot up and shoot. I think at times this year, Ole Miss has had two people in their lineups 
that can do that, right? Like you've got Ruff and Jarkel Morrell, but they haven't really all played together. Um, and so that, I think that's a big piece for this group is, is that. And Fagan yesterday scores, but also has nine turnovers as well. So his, his net is, you know, his efficiency, that, that really hurts him there as well. So um, I think it just goes to show, and it's a point that definitely will be emphasized in the portal uh, or attempted to be, is this team has got to go get some more guards. It's a great point you make about the Florida side of it as well, because there's actually some parallels you could draw between the two teams and Kermit's philosophy. I'm not even sure if it's an Ole Miss versus Florida thing, but it's it's Florida versus Kermit's philosophy. You mentioned it. Their guards are unimpressive. I think you mentioned that on social media yesterday, and I, I agree. But they have pretty good front court guys, which honestly made Ole yeah. Miss getting the amount of rebounds they had yesterday all the more impressive but Florida still struggles to score the basketball. And so you're mentioning like, you know, you said it's a pretty basic, seemingly obvious statement that you have to have playmakers at guard in the SEC to be able to score. Well, like Florida is kind yeah. of the antithesis of that. They have pretty good forwards and they still struggle to score. I think that's probably one of the best examples you could find of, you know, this whole kind of build your team around the front court at this level of basketball is I don't know if outdated concept is the right way to say it, but I feel like that could you could get away with that at middle a hell of a lot more than you can get away with that in the Southeastern Conference. Absolutely. And, you know, if you can't score, um, you've got to be able to be an absolute lockdown defender. And one thing I saw interesting yesterday, obviously Fagan had nine turnovers. I, I looked, Ole Miss had 14 yesterday, which isn't, you know, that's not terrible. I thought it, that number would have been a little bit higher. But Florida to the guard spot, you know, if you if you're not if you're not scoring um, at a at a pretty high uh, clip offensively, this is what you've got to do. Neil Neil's lane, okay, twenty eight minutes. This cat doesn't score, but what he did do is when he was on the floor, Ole Miss averaged point seven six points per possession offensively. When he was off the floor that number, number was almost double. Wow. He was super disruptive at, both on the ball, um, played really good in help as well. And so, you know, we kind of thought that Luis could be that guy, but I think he's taken a step back both offensively and defensively compared to the past couple of years. So if you, if you can't score, you need to have, you know, some stats like that where you can come in and really lock down people offensively as well. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's what this group's missing a little bit. As far as it pertains to Nas Brooks and plus minus, because I was looking through this right before we started recording Nas Brooks yesterday, he scores 11 points, five of 10 from the field. Stat broadcast is telling me Nas Brooks took a three. I don't know if that was one of those end of the half heaves. I don't remember, recall that. I, that can't have been within the flow of an offense, nine rebounds. He had three offensive rebounds. A big and one there in overtime, even though I think he missed the free throw and one early in the game. But his plus – so I, what I don't understand about that is, did you think – I'll start here. Did you think he played well yesterday? I thought he was great. I thought he was disruptive. I thought he's probably the main reason that Ole Miss ended up out-rebounding Florida by 12. Like, he, I thought he was awesome. I was kind of surprised with the amount of front court options Florida had. They couldn't contain him. I thought he played pretty well. What did you think of his game yesterday? 
Yeah, I, I agree as well. And I think that one thing we've talked about it a lot, but we knew offensively the center spot was going to take a step back because Romello White was, I mean, he was a bucket. He was an automatic bucket down in the low post. But we knew that uh, Nas was pretty capable. And, you know, I think he's done some good things offensively, especially five feet and in around the goal. Um, we've always known that undersized bigs are really going to struggle guarding him because he's able to turn over his left shoulder at a pretty efficient rate. Going forward, I think that they've got to find more creative ways to get him um, shots where I think he's comfortable is in two spots, pick and roll um, and not having a rough is really going to hurt with that because of how much attention um, people put on him. You saw a lot of lobs for dunks to Nas Brooks. Um, because of Ruffin's, you know, the scouting report that was out on him. But I think Nas is really good pick-and-roll situations, and he's really good back-to-the-basket with undersized bigs. He is shooting almost uh, almost 60% from the field this year. Um, he's right at 59%. That's, that's unreal on 153 attempts uh, um, for the year. I don't know if that per game – that per game average uh, melts down to, but I, I think they've got to find more creative ways to get him the ball um, because he adds another wrinkle to this offense, especially when you are, you know, a little thin at the guard spot right now. So that leads me to, I, I, I don't have any qualms about what you just said. I agree. I mean, it's, he's been good. It's like a, uh, in some ways it's a little bit of like a light version of what Romello White was. You mentioned there was going to be a drop-off because Romello White was awesome. But, like, he's offered some of the same stuff, just not as much of an offensive prowess. But that was what makes me wonder when I was looking through some of the statistics today right before we hit the record button, how do you guys as a staff view plus-minus? Because technically speaking, Nas Brooks was the worst on the team at minus 13, and that just doesn't make any sense with the way that game – like the way the flow of that game, and if you watched it, like he was not the – I mean, not that that makes you the least valuable player, but like he was not a liability at any point, but then you look it up at the end of the game, and it's like how the hell is his plus minus minus 13? How do you guys – like how do you translate that as a staff and take that into context as it pertains to not just him? Yeah, well, look, you know, I'm of the opinion of this both basketball wise and you know just in other things as well but numbers tell stories okay and so in this case when you look at plus minuses what a lot of coaches do is you have to look at that over a bigger sample size um than just one game there are games where it's skewed there's some games where it can tell a really good story too and sometimes when you're communicating to your team you try to you have the story in your head and you try to go find the numbers to tell that story to your team, if that makes sense too. Um, for for that, I think in looking um, for five game, like through five games or more, conference play only, season wide is a better way to look at it than just one game. But I do think that um, what coaches like to do is they like looking at this stuff on more of a micro level and looking at offensive efficiency. You know, um, there's one that's rebound rate, so essentially. Um, out of every four rebounds that are up in the air, normally your defense is getting three of them. So 75% is your rebound rate. Well, if you're higher than that, that means you're really good at blocking out. If you're lower than that, you're struggling a lot with offensive rebounds. You can look at it on the same side for when you're playing offense as well. So there's a lot of things that they look at, but to answer your question, plus minus is better to look at with a bigger sample size 
And then if you're looking on a per game basis, the simple stats that we all look at, the coaches are looking at and at halftime and after the game, but also some efficiency numbers as well. You mentioned trying to get him the basketball more, and they did a nice job of that in the first half. And in some of the games, right. those crucial moments, I thought they did in the second half as well. I can't. I think it was at the very beginning of overtime where they got him. He looked like he was one of the first guys down the floor, and he got pretty good low position or whatever. They got it to him on the right block, and he had that pretty sick dunk to the left side yeah. with and one. But it was more difficult to get him the basketball in the second half. I don't know if you saw the same thing, but I thought they tried. But Florida was kind of like, okay, this is what they're trying to do here. And there was a lot more turnovers off deflections trying to get the ball to Brooks in the post. So I, did you think they went away with it? Because for the way I saw it was it was kind of more so a lack of yeah. success versus a lack of trying. Agreed. And so and what I was saying there is more creative. No, than, yeah, you no, know, I knew what you meant, like big picture. It just seemed like yesterday, right. like they were like, we're like that was what they wanted to do. They just struggled to do it. Yeah, no, I, I think it was more of a it, it was more of an execution thing, and I, you know, with roughing out, I don't really know what the answer is. I I couldn't dice up what exactly what action you know they would run or whatever to get it to him more. Um, roughing was really helping Nas out to get some open looks off that PNR. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how with, with how effective he has been in the low post. You're, the the piece that Jarkel, you know, you're having to ease him back in rough and stop playing, they're going to have to go to him more. Another thing that is interesting to me is college basketball, pro basketball, is all becoming a lot more positionless year by year. If you look at this year, I think there's a lot less um, back-to-the-basket bigs than there even were half a decade ago when you had, like, Gavin Ware, Saez, all these guys who were, like, true back-to-the-basket bigs. So the way you take advantage of that is you go play back to the basket against some of these more undersized but athletic five men. And then Nas Brooks, his ability is he's so long, he's seven feet tall, fairly athletic as well, but he can disrupt around the rim. So there's, there's a lot of positives that come out of, um, you know, the way that he plays, even though a lot of teams are getting to this more position list where at some point down the road, you're going to see just straight up five out offense in college basketball. And it's kind of a trickle down. Like it's, it's like a lot of things, even though in college football, sometimes it seems like it's the reverse. This is just a trickle down of what you've seen in the NBA for the last, what, six years at this point. Right. Maybe even longer. Um, maybe, maybe even longer than that. Yeah. And I don't think the bas back to the basket big is going to die, so to speak, but I just, I just think that we're going to, we're going to see a lot more um, five out stuff. Well, it's like a time and a place for it. I mean, like it, the that first thing I think of was like Rudy Gobert or someone like that to where like, he's awesome. But like there's certain playoff series that like that guy just probably couldn't help because he's too much of a defensive liability at, or that's which kind of sounds weird to say because that's kind of what his calling card is, but like the matchup doesn't work. So kind of keeping it uh kind of keeping it on this game for a second before we hop to a couple other things. Second half is a struggle offensively. I think Ole Miss scored what, like fifty or fourteen, fifteen points in the second half before they got to overtime. I mean, I don't know about you, but once that game, it was, you know, admirable effort to fight down from six or eight down or whatever it was. But even when they got it to overtime, the way that game was trending, I was like, I don't necessarily like their chances. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, they scored two points in overtime while the game was still really in the balance. Florida, I think, pulled it out to nine points. I don't remember if it got to double digits. 
But, like, Ole Miss went about three and a half minutes there where they only scored two points, and I believe that was on the Nas Brooks and one. So kind of a struggle offensively, again, is what led to this loss. It's not a bad week for them, but the second half was rough. And if you're trying to just, like, I don't even say assign blame, but if you're trying to diagnose some of the issues beyond what they don't have on the floor with Ruffin, you know, whether it's Robert Allen, um, joining her first game back, the thing I always keep going back to is, is Jamie and Brakefield. And yesterday he ends up with zero points. He took three shots. He had two rebounds, two fouls. He turned it over twice, and he only played 16 minutes. For a guy that you got from Duke, and I know that's like a simplistic way to look at it, there's full games and sometimes two, three-game stretches where he's just a complete non-factor. And I know he does some nice stuff defensively, but is it fair to say at this point that, like, whatever he could have offered offensively, even though that always seemed clear as to what that might be, what he's not doing is really hurting them? Because, I mean, talking even if you get six, eight points from him, like the game's a different story, and he's just kind of a non-factor. What have you seen from him over the last month? Yeah, I think the consistency is a big issue. Um, you would think in a scenario where, and both of these have happened this year, Ruffin goes down or Jarkel goes down, that he could step up and be the third guy from an offensive standpoint. And if you look at it over the course of the year, that's, that probably is what it checks out to be. Um, but the consistency for him is, is huge. His handles are not great. He moves slow and has a kind of an old man's game to him, which is not a terrible thing. Um, I think the athleticism has called up a little bit with him in this league. I still think he's got, you know, the ability – to, to be a good college player here um, at Ole Miss, he has at times provided a perimeter threat um, at the four spot that we haven't had a whole lot. But you're right. To, to your point, it's the disappearing. And, you know, going into this game, I didn't – you know, you don't want him to have to be a guy that can only play 15 minutes. Um, you would think that he would be a guy playing 30 minutes or more um, regarding breakfield. Well, particularly what they don't have. Right, it's a lack right. of depth across the board. Like that guy, if you told me that Ole Miss was down two starters in a February SEC game, and that Jamie and Brakefield only played 16 minutes, if you'd have told me that in November, I mean, just sheer, sheerly weighing those two things, I'd have been kind of shocked. And I guess so. Him playing 16 minutes yesterday, what that means? They mostly went with a lineup of trying to think of think of this like in live action with my head. That Luis, would be yeah. Brooks, Luis, Fagan. Crowley and Joyner, basically? Well, Crowley played like 10 minutes, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think what you're talking about here. So, like, it's 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 Brooks, it's definitely Joyner, it's Luis and Fagan. So, I guess that's four, and then some combination of Morel. I mean, Morel, obviously, that would actually be this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's I'm making it more complicated than it sounds. Like, you're basically going with those four guys and – I don't know. Just the idea that Brakefield in a in a you know early February game that Ole Miss is as shorthand as they are is only on the floor for 16 minutes. That is kind of uh, shocking to me because when you get into the like missed evals part of it, like I don't think we put that in the classification as one. But I mean, if he can't contribute at this state, you know, more than that, that's just I guess that's surprising to me. I don't even know. If yeah. In there. Yeah, and I, I'm like you. I would not go miss eval on him at all. He's definitely, you know, he's he's a sophomore, and really this is his first year playing, like, serious minutes because um, he got buried a little bit at Duke 
this group definitely would have liked to see or not liked to see was expecting more out of him, um, especially on the offensive side of the court. So it's going to be one thing to watch going forward in February to see if he can kind of pick it back up. Because at one point in the year, he was averaging, you know, give or take 10 a game, uh, shooting 35 to 37% from three. You take that, right? Like out of your four spot, you, you, you would take that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he kind of bounces back from yesterday. As it pertains to the big picture, I was thinking about this yesterday as the game was unfolding, and most of it was when Ole Miss had a lead. They go on the road, you know, from a not quitting, not giving up standpoint, we kind of gave them their collective pat on the back for that last week uh, when we spoke last Sunday. But I think that mean, I think it just follows it up. I mean, they, that's a tough week from a true road game. If you'd have made me wager, I'd have actually wagered probably a lot of money that they would go 0-2 this week, and they didn't. You know, they were – you know, a bounce here or a bounce there away from being 2-0 and on a road week. And it's interesting the way this is all shook out from an SEC perspective. So, what, they're now – I'm make sure they're record right. They're 12-11 and and they're 3-7 in, in the standings. Yeah. If they win yesterday, they're 4-6 and six with the stretch of Alabama at Missouri, South Carolina at home, and then at Georgia. Like, yeah. I'm not saying they would beat Alabama at home, but you could have made a case that if they'd won three in a row, all of a sudden this team's seven and six, giving you know, yeah. given everything that's happened. And look, I don't necessarily think that would happen, you know, banking on this team to win three straight games with the in- inconsistent play they've gotten at times is, you know, wishful thinking at best. But I guess what I'm trying to encapsulate is no matter how bad it's been for this team, if you just like don't throw a complete dud at home against Missouri two weeks ago, like they were still in like okay as shape. I mean, they could have realistically at the you know three quarter mark been a 500 team in this SEC, which is remarkable to think about with how bad it's been sometimes, right? Yeah, it's interesting to play that game out. And you know, the other tough ones too is, I mean, Western. It's kind of a middle of the pack, maybe even bottom uh, Conference USA team sitting maybe top 200 net. And the Sanford one was going to always bite them as well. You're allowed with the net now to kind of have a game or two like that, but you can't have a ton of them. Um, it was interesting. I, I think Kermit said in his press conference that he thought that if they had won yesterday, now you can start talking you – know, like you could, postseason formula – started to exist again and that was I don't disagree I don't find that ridiculous I know that's going to sound crazy but that's kind of what I'm getting at is what he said yeah no I mean (laughs) I I agree there's a bit of it that's like okay yes but it's a little bit of a stretch type thing and I mean look your coach you're trying to, to just figure out what the formula is in general um so I think you the thing we've talked about like the past month or two is like Hope is such a motivator. So just having hope to be able to see that picture at all um, can help keep a locker room together. And I think I agree with him, you know, on that point. So I didn't realize the the upcoming schedule. You had South Carolina and Georgia that week after as well. Um, so you're right. I mean, definitely some momentum going there. And they would have had a decent crowd to, for this Bama game as well, winning two, you know, conference road games in a row. Um, so I think this is an interesting week for Ole Miss. Bama's, I think, going to be pretty motivated and pissed off. They have not been playing super well and got beat by 11 by Kentucky. And then Ole Miss, you know, on Saturday, um, Missouri, 
you know, that's one that embarrassed them. So I'm sure their Ole Miss is going to play pretty hard against Missouri uh, to get some revenge there. Yeah, and as it pertains to what like Kermit said or whatever, like I don't. And like, there's a reason that I haven't mentioned the word NCAA tournament in almost an hour yeah. of podcasting, right? Like, that's not a realistic thing. I just – I think you encapsulated it well when you were talking about, like, the hope aspect of it. I guess I was just – I was sitting there and I was looking at their upcoming schedule, and they were up seven at the time early in in the second half, and I'm sitting there thinking, shit, if they hold on to this, they're four and six. Like, you yeah. could – you talk about the hope aspect. You could sell, hey, if we go on a run, who knows what could happen, right? Like, I mean – if, you know, if they win three, four in a row, then you start talking, okay, maybe this is an NIT team and you can build something off that. But, like, I imagine Kermit in that locker room is, hey, we're four and six. We got South Carolina, Missouri, and Georgia coming up. We beat Alabama on Sunday. Like, you know, who knows what could happen? And so I think the way you encapsulate it is probably the best way. It's just like, hey, you could at least sell hope, which sounds like a crazy thing because, I mean, my God, the second week of January, like, what the hell were you selling yeah. after the 78-53 loss to Missouri? But it's a – it's a shame in that sense, but I think you'll kind of look back at this year. We never really talked about the rough and loss and what it meant big picture, and part of that's probably just because I assumed that – I didn't assume Jarkel Joyner would come back so soon. Like, now that you lose rough and given everything they've gone through, and I know it hasn't looked great offensively, like, don't you think this is largely evaluated as tough year with a lot of shit breaks, they better win next year type of thing? Is that the general sense you get? That that's kind of the vibe that I get. Um, you know, I, I, it doesn't seem like this administration, you know, really wants to make a move. Um, I think this coaching staff has to have by far their best year in the portal. Um, you know, this year for next year to be a success. Um, but you've got some guys to build off of. Um, I'm really interested to see. We talked about the Ruff and Morell piece, how they play well together. Now that Morell has proven to himself that he can score at an SEC level, I'm interested to see him do that without Ruffin because they kind of – it almost coexisted a little bit when he got back. Um, so I'm interested to see what Morell looks like the rest of the year because Ruffin and Morell are two guys that I do think you can build, you know, pieces around. But you got to go get some dudes that are similar in talent to them to, to fill some of these holes and – you can't miss on any evals. There are a lot of guys on this roster right now that you can look at and say that that guy's a mid-major player. There's a lot of them. Um, and so you, at this point, you know, you can't miss any evals um, once this offseason happens. And as we've hit for the last couple of weeks, talk about, hey, they haven't quit. Good for them. You know, you get the nice road win, even though it costs you, you know, Deshaun Ruffin or whatever. How much value as, you know, as someone who's been in a locker room and worked on the staff, how much value is there – if they win a couple of these games down the stretch, just, just for the sake of it, say they beat Missouri, South Carolina, and Georgia, and they're feeling a little bit better about themselves going into late February. We talked about the portal, right? They, you just highlighted it. They have to have their best year as a staff in the portal, but they also have to keep their own dudes. We talk about this young core. Yeah. They have to keep them, and that's hard to do, harder than ever to do. How much value in, like, a selling, you know, a morel or – a joiner who I don't figure would go anywhere. He has another year, right? I'm just – I've assumed that this yeah, is the time. I'm that's just, right. Yeah, he's got another year. And even Ruffin, how much value is there in selling the fact that, hey, we had success later in the year. You played as a, better as a player. Like, if you can – you three guys or you four guys, yeah. whatever you're packaging, can stick together. Like, we have something here. Is there value in winning, even though the games don't seem consequential, and keeping your core intact? 
I actually think there is, and here's why. Like, let's say this group finishes with six or seven conference wins. Well, now, hey, coaches are professional salesmen. You can go in, and there's not one transfer in the country that's watched all, whatever it is, 23 Ole Miss right. games, you know. But what you can go in and sell is say, hey, look, we finished 7 and 11 in the league. We were never fully healthy. If we had had this guy here and this guy here, we would have won those two games that pulled our net down, blah, blah, blah reality whether that's true or not I mean who, who knows but you can go in and sell that hey if we hadn't had injuries we would have we could have played in the postseason we were missing you you and you to do that and we're returning you know most of these guys they're gonna they're gonna have to fill a big spot as well um, but I, I really and truly think that they're gonna have to bring in at least four transfers next year as crazy as that sounds it doesn't and like even beyond that like they 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 also have to be good. That seems like a big uh, a, a big aspect of it, right? Because that's something we talked about last week. Is like, yeah, you know, hey, just go get a couple of shooters in the portal or whatever. It's like, well, that's actually easier said than done. Like you got to actually hit on those guys. So it'll yeah. be fascinating to kind of see how they build out this roster and what they're able to keep versus you know the natural attrition uh, that happens in a given off season as a. Uh, in the modern day and age of SEC basketball. Let's take a look around the SEC before we get out of here because it was a big day in a lot of senses. Let's just start with the game that's most fresh on my memory because it was at 7.30 last night. Kentucky-Alabama. We talked about Alabama playing up to their competition. If I, on the off chance I were a wagering man, I would have, uh, despite it being in Tuscaloosa, kind of in that Vegas zone for college hoops, uh, I would have loved Kentucky in this matchup because of something you pointed out is, Alabama's bigs not being very impressive and them not being great in the front court. You know, uh, Toshibwe was 10 points, 15 rebounds. But the thing that way, I the takeaway I had from this game is Kentucky's really good and they're also tough as hell. What did you see in this? Yeah, I agree with that. They're becoming like a a team that I think could could win it all actually. And I, I didn't think that going into the season. They're starting to really gel. Ty Ty Washington's a really good player. Grady can shoot uh, Shibwe. I mean, I haven't seen – like, his numbers um, – obviously, he doesn't have the perimeter threat, but his numbers in college are similar to, like, Blake Griffin and um, Kevin Love, um, you know, because he just has high points and high rebounds. So, um, it, it's interesting to see. But, yeah, I, I actually think another thing on th- this game, too, is I think Bama's had some miss evals. Um, from like their six through eight guys as well on their roster. And I think that started to show here in the past couple of weeks. Uh, so do you think, oh, that's interesting. So like that has to be front court related, right? Because there were times early in the year, what the, I mean, I guess the further and further away we get to it, you kind of, you have to remind yourself, hey, that team beat uh, Gonzaga. Like yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of the year, they, they had that week where they beat Gonzaga and then Houston and I was like, damn, Alabama might be the best team in the country. That's looking more like a flash in the pan. So you're thinking that they're, the roster's not as uh, well constructed as you, you would have thought in November? So I don't think it's the Ole Miss situation where it's like some dudes like aren't worth their scholarship. Sure. I think it was they were expecting to get more out of some guys. Um, don't, don't love their front court, like we've said. But also, they were super high on J.D. Davidson. I mean, thought, you know, that he could be, you know, first-team All-American type guy as a freshman. Um, some people around that program were. So, I think he's electrifying. He's really fun to watch. I think he's a little loose and sloppy at times offensively. 
but I think they were expecting to get a little bit more out of him. And you could probably go down the list with a few others as well that are uh, more newcomers on their team. Keeping it kind of rolling down the list of games yesterday, I didn't watch a ton of this game, but uh, Auburn barely escapes Georgia. <laughs> I guess I'm going to look at this from a Georgia aspect. They didn't quit. Like, Cream's getting canned. Uh, I was. This was one of the more shocking results of the day. Auburn finds a way. They just look like – that's one of those classic games. They shouldn't have been in that spot. But, like, you know, a second weekend team probably drops that. We're like a Final Four contender. They found a way to do it. Like, they, this just seems yeah. like a very special team despite playing, like, complete ass for about 38 minutes. Yeah. It, well, the thing is, Auburn was up pretty big, like, the first – like 24 plus, one yeah like well going into half and then like through the first media time out of the second half I mean they had a pretty commanding lead but you're right they were able to do it I didn't realize this I mean I knew Georgia was terrible they've only won six games this year they're six and 16 aren't they <laughs> yeah and one and nine in conference play so that'll be one I'm really interested to see who they they hire this offseason as well um, that's gonna be a really interesting job opening um, but I've yeah, asked you Auburn this before though, before we get to Auburn side, I've asked you this before. Yeah. I don't understand. Do you guys that worked in like the coaching industry not look around and like, Hey, how does this job suck? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the big thing is, I mean, so their facilities aren't great. They don't have the, they don't have the booster support that they do in football. Um, you know, <laughs> believe it or not. The big thing, though, that everybody thinks about, and I don't know why this is the case, but Atlanta kids are not attracted to the Georgia basketball program and really haven't been. Um, that's not the case with Georgia football. Atlanta's a hotbed. It's a great recruiting ground. If you could get, you know, two of the top players from the city every year, you'd do really well. So that that's number one to it. The other thing that the past couple staffs have done they get their ass kicked in southwest Georgia, um, and, and kind of really south of Atlanta by Auburn. Auburn has really taken over in that area south of Atlanta. They've hired some assistants who are kind of you know from that area, and they've taken over and had a lot of – if you went through their roster the past half decade, they've had a lot of good players from that area. So I think Georgia's lost that battle that, um, that they could win going forward. But some of those schools – what you sell to these kids is, you know, location. And some of these South Southwest Georgia schools are closer to Auburn's campus than they are to Athens. So that's another key to it as well. Um, but a, a lot of people think it's, a, it should be a better job than it is. There just haven't been a ton of guys that have gone out and proved that. Is Auburn the best team in the country? As of right now, I think so. I mean, Gonzaga's really good. Duke looked great. Uh, yesterday, you know, Kansas gets their ass kicked by Kentucky, but then it goes and destroys Baylor. I think Baylor's good. I think Kentucky's good. Um, and this will be a fun – the parody will be a lot of fun. Um, once March Madness rolls around this year, I think there's going to be – you know, there's a lot of unpredictability to it. Um, but as of today, yeah, I think Auburn's the best team in the country because they're fit they're – it's a talent and a fit thing that really make them go. One random thing before we get back to the SEC stuff that I've wondered about for the last couple of weeks. I watched a Houston game not last week or this weekend, two weekends ago. They're 18-2. and two. They won 11 in a row. And had, did they not lose their two best players? They lost one in the Alabama game and then one more. How does that keep happening? Is it just Kelvin Sampson, despite whatever happened to Indiana, is just a good coach? 
They uh, yeah, he, he's tough as hell. Yeah, he's a really good coach, and um, I think well, I've talked to you about this before. But one thing that's scary about him is he's finally starting to he's starting to get like four and five star dudes there, which doesn't historically happen. What he's built that program around is good evals on kids. He's made really good evals. Kids like playing for him. He's got a good staff in place. Now, past couple of years, he's gone out there and proved that. Um, they're in the ACC, which is not a super challenging um, league, but they schedule some decent games in non-conference. That gives them national exposure. Now they're able to recruit at a national level. So he's got a really good thing going there. Keeping it rolling through, Missouri beats Texas A&M on the road. Texas A&M started 4-0 in the conference. They're now 4-6. and Yeah. We talked about this not being a talented team. I think you perfectly surmised Buzz Williams' kind of time there so far is that you figured he would get it turned around from a result standpoint. But from a personnel and getting guys there and talent there, maybe that's a little bit lagging. Seems like the bloom is off the rose in some respects with that. You know, to me, a Buzz Williams team – they lose five games in a row. I would have guessed that that's a game where they win by 20 points going away against a struggling Missouri team, and that didn't happen yesterday. That You could argue that was maybe the second most shocking result. What are you seeing from them? Yeah, I, you know, their thing is personnel. They're not there. They're not super talented. Ole Miss struggles, especially with some of the lineups they have of bucket getters. A&M doesn't have a ton of those. Um, this one hurts because we talk about hope. This is one that, you know, that, that hope to make the tournament decreases a lot here um, after a, a, a loss to Missouri and how they are from a, from a net standpoint. So pretty tough one. Hard to keep that locker room together after um, six losses. But I think if anybody can do it, I think Buzz can. What's fascinating about his deal is we did you we did you watch that game at LSU the other night where Texas A&M basically had that game won and really kind of pissed it away down the stretch. If you win that game, you stop the losing streak. It's not even called a losing streak yet, technically, at that point, at two. And then you get South Carolina at home, and, like, things might be end up being all well in the world. Now they lose that game. They've lost six in a row. Their last two home losses are to South Carolina and Missouri. Like, those are, to yeah. me, just looking at the, like, kind of the way the schedule works out in SEC hoops. And I've talked to you about this before to where it's like, you know, you know, a bounce here, a bounce there, one possession there can not only change a game in like a season, but like those are two streak stoppers and you lose those at home. Now they get LSU again and then they have to go to Auburn. It's like this thing could turn into eight in a row in a hurry, which is crazy to think about because you're probably a possession away from, you know, winning at LSU two weeks ago and everything being fine. That's another one I wanted to get to. Actually, we have, I feel required to ask one thing about Missouri. Is Conzo as good as dad? Like what has happened to that program? Well, that's a a lot of people think that that's a top half job in the league. They've got a lot of history. Um, they've actually their arena is probably only about ten years old. They've got good facilities. Their fans are, understand basketball. I you know I I have never been super impressed with um, some of the stuff that that he runs there. Um, he's a pretty easy scout um, when you're looking at his team, especially offensively. His thing is you know the Porter situation. If he had gotten those guys, I think it could, could have created some momentum for him to turn that program around. They've had some NCAA stuff over the past that's probably hurt that program a little bit as well. But um, for him, I mean, he hasn't recruited well at all in the past couple of years. And you stack a few of those years together and the results 
are what they are. Um, I could see though, obviously like I think he's done this year. I could see some Missouri people really trying to step up on the NIL side of the house to try to make that program more attractive because they do have a lot of people that care about that program. I was about to say they're borderline one of those places where it's like, do they care more about this than football? Like yeah, not right. quite, but it's close, which is kind of fascinating. State Arkansas, really important game for Mississippi State. Arkansas about as hot as anyone in the conference. I didn't watch a ton yeah. of this game given my TV viewing situation and the uh, local watering hole I was at. Did you watch this at all? What did you think of this result? No, I didn't watch this. Um, this is, I mean, them when this is about what was expected. You know, state. They're going to be one that it's going to it's going to come down to maybe the SEC tournament for them to know whether they're going to get in or not. It kind of feels like um, they've kind of got a similar feel. Now, Ole Miss was a little bit more of a roller coaster, but their their season has a little bit of a similar feel to Ole Miss's last year, where it, you know if the season ended today, the they probably got to go win two in the tournament to the SEC tournament to get in. Um, I think State's talented. I don't think they're very deep. I think they Howland's comfortable with about four or five dudes on that team. Um, I've, I've made I've had a lot of criticism of him and his ability to maximize his his rosters and his lineups. And I think a lot of uh, state fans are frustrated with that again this year. And one in seven, um, I feel like it would be tough for them not to let him go. So that was one they needed. That would have been a you know, borderline quad one win, I think, for them if they had, if they had gotten it done um, in Fayetteville. One of the toughest places in the conference to play, no doubt. Um, so they're going to be interesting to see going forward. Yeah, and we talked about last week this kind of stretch defining their season, and it's a four-gamer, right? It started with this game, then they go Tennessee at home, at LSU, at Alabama, then back-to-back against Missouri. So, like, this next three you're going to know, and you talk about them needing to – like, if it came down to it, they're going to need a couple in the SEC tournament. These are the type of games – and, look, like, you can't crush Howland for losing at Arkansas, particularly with the way Arkansas has been playing. But that was a two-point game with five or six minutes to go. Like, that's the kind of game where you pull that out and you don't have as much work to do when you arrive at Nashville – or the tournament's in Tampa this year. But you get my point. Like, when you when the regular season ends. And to me, that's the story of kind of Howen's time there. That type of game that could really kind of give them some sort of leeway instead of being just a perennial bubble team, they just haven't done it. They have never been able yeah. to pull that type of game out. And it's probably too simplistic to say that that comes down to, like, coaching acumen. But at a certain point, you kind of are what you are. I just – I don't know. If State had won that game, they'd have had some breathing room, and to me, that's kind of been the game they proverbially lose. I didn't look at this, but I would have hammered Arkansas if I were a wagering man, is my point. Yeah, I agreed 100%. I think that was about it from, like, notable SEC results, just kind of looking at it. Like, actually, no, LSU's a fascinating one. You want to talk about a game that's <laughs> going to be awesome in, in for the – like, not in necessarily awesome reasons in a, uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever this is? LSU A&M is on Tuesday night. How, who needs that worse? Well, I think I would say A&M right now um, and needs that, that one worse. Too. Right, right. Um, I think A&M needs that one worse because LSU – yeah, I mean, for sure they need it worse. LSU is actually – and the rankings are sometimes weird because when they refresh it, they were still top 25 in some polls going into this game. Uh, pretty and, much both of them. Like the AP and coaches, they were both still yeah. 25th. And A&M's net, I, 
you'd know before I would, but probably now in like the seventies, I would think sixties or seventies. Um, so I think there's a pretty big difference. I think A and M. This is a has to have it for A and M. LSU, it's more of a locker room thing. Pinson not playing has killed them, but yeah, they shot twenty one percent from the three against Vandy. Vandy's not great. Stackhouse has gotten a little bit more out of that team this year than I thought um, than I thought he would. Um, they're twelve and ten, four and six in the league. It, you talk about hope, like you know, four and six. Like you were talking about earlier, you can kind of sell NIT or whatever with that to your team. But um, six out of the last seven for the Bayou Bengals being losses, that's a that's a pretty tough one for that group. Okay, so are they still that injured, though? That, that, this is a fascinating one from both sides of it. Because, like, is LSU still that injured? Because they got Pinson back against Ole Miss. Like, how how close are they to fully healthy? Like, what is – like, how much weight would you actually put on the injury aspect? Because I think the first two weeks of this slide or whatever it is, you could definitely blame on injuries, but it seems like they've gotten some guys back. We'll see. So, I think it's like getting your pieces of your puzzle fit together once these guys get back from their injuries. But I don't know the full story on it. Pinson did not play last night, though. After playing against Ole Miss. Correct. That is kind of fascinating. I don't know. It's uh, – Vanderbilt-wise, I'm glad to see they let the students back in the game instead of letting Tennessee and visiting fans buy that. That seems like a uh, pretty sound decision. <laughs> I haven't watched a ton of Vanderbilt. I, the only game I watched of them, I would say, from its entirety was the road win at Arkansas. It seemed like for, you know a month ago as a given that Stackhouse was going to get canned. Is your thoughts on that changed? Because it seems like they have uh, a terrific score and the rest of it's kind of eh. So this is – here's my tough thing with – so I, I did not like that hire a lot when they made it. Um, he was terrible his first two years there. Um, he's gotten more out of this group than I thought he would. So I think this is the, – the, the deal with Stackhouse is if you did side-by-sides between him and Bryce Drew in their first three years, Bryce Drew's winning that one. And Bryce Drew got fired, right? Bryce Drew went to the tournament year one. He signed some four- and five-star players. Stackhouse hasn't really done that. And Stackhouse has never – and they probably will this year, but he has never um, not played on a Tuesday night game in the SEC tournament. Now, Bryce Drew's deal, he literally did not win a conference game his last year there. I, I, thought, I thought he actually could have worked out there. Um, he had some, like, crazy injuries to some really talented players on this group. But it'd be a really hard thing to sell to your fan base to not fire Stackhouse after this year with the stats back-to-back. Um, I will say, though, there is some administration in place there now that wasn't there during the whole Bryce Drew tenure, too. So you never really know who's whose people from that standpoint. Yeah, counterpoint. If you don't have a fan base to sell something to, you could actually be okay. That's right. That's right. But you are right from an administrative standpoint. You know, we, uh, Chris Lee is a guy we have on the podcast from time to time, whether it's Vandy baseball or football. <laughs> the most interesting conversations I have with that guy, because, like, when it comes to football, like, I'll get messages to where, like, why are you doing a Vandy preview? And I'm like, well, like, hearing what this guy has to say about how Vanderbilt's run versus what is actually happening on the hardwood or on the football field is actually way more fascinating. That's uh, That's an entire podcast in and of itself, but – you know, I guess good for them. They kind of – they put it on them. And what They were up like 25 or something in the first half. And then oh. uh, the A&M side of it is you were talking about, they dropped seven spots in the net just off the loss last night. They were 64th and now they're 71st. That's a uh, 
brutal loss. And then I guess wrapping that up, if you're LSU and you finish a game short of the tournament, like, don't you look at that old Miss one and be like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. That's one that is really going to hurt. I don't think they're, or do you have net pulled up right now? Yeah, so I have uh, what's LSU seventy first LSU. I mean LSU's probably in the thirties. Let's see. This is me just scrolling it live with our IT department. Okay, so I want to make sure this is correct. This is claiming they're sixteenth. They they they've been very high in the net all year. Um, my point there is I don't think they're at the point yet where they've got to worry about. Um, this was updated about last night. They're sixteenth. Yeah, and there's some stuff with the net. Like there's been some years where like um, low major school is you know twenty two and two, and it's like third in the net, and you're like, well. That is cool and all, but there are 50 teams in the country that would beat them, right? Like, there's some things there with the net that are a little weird. LSU's non-conference strength of schedule wasn't great, and they really took advantage um, of their non-conference schedule. I just – I don't think they're at the point yet where they've got to worry. That that was my point of looking up the net. I don't think they're, they're at a point where they've got to worry about not getting in the tournament. That's a great way to wrap up this pod because that's what I wanted to get before we got out of here is some AK stuff. If I drugged you with some truth serum – if you remember, I believe the net was instituted right after AK left. How many times have you texted AK and been like, wish the net was here when we were around? <laughs> I've definitely heard that one a few times. I, you know, <laughs> I, I've seen like some people have run numbers on it before and texted me that, you know, probably know a lot more about this than I do. But I think the program may have gotten two, um, if not three more tournaments out of it. If you kind of run – the side by side, um, but you know it is what it is. You have That's to take advantage. That's not insignificant, of... I would say. No, no, it's not. I see where you're going with this. <laughs> um, no, um, but I think you know you got to take advantage of the of the system that, that that's in place, and the conference was a little bit different back then as well. So um, it's hard to really do a, a retro look back on that. Sure, I was just mostly pulling Elaine Kiffin and stirring the pot. Last thing before we get out of here, AK gets the Gene Bar- uh, the Bartow game. They win yesterday. Jelly Walker looked like he might have 70 at some point in that game. Awesome. Like, it seems like AK's kind of – not kind of has that rolling. They're kind of having that year where he puts a program like that, quote-unquote, on the map, whether it's support or whatever. What does yeah. that do with this Jelly Walker guy? How is he a blazer versus somewhere else? Yeah, so he came uh, – was a transfer from Seton Hall and then Tulane. Um, and he's just one of these guys that is such a good fit in AK's offense. He's got a little moody to him, um, would be my best comp of any AK players. Got an edge to him, you know, mentally is one of these guys that you've got to have a coach that can handle him or he'll go all over the place. But he's shooting about 42 43% from the three. And I think AK – um, has run a lot of good action for him. Um, there, there's a guy that tweets a lot of Florida basketball stuff. I think his name's Eric Fawcett, and uh, he's uh, a great follower. Former pod a, member. That guy's great. Or pod yeah, if, he's if, as smart as anyone in the country. Very niche follow, but he's great. Yeah, he's actually the one that uh, roasted me on Twitter about half a decade ago with the Justin Timberlake tweet, if you, uh, if you remember that. Is that uh, a roast coincidentally or a well, I guess I guess it's a compliment. We'll, we'll say compliment. I do remember. Uh, but no, he he's really good. If you're a basketball junkie, he does a lot of stuff. Um, if, especially if you like analytics on like points per possession. But 
he tweeted out some of I've watched UAB a few times this year, but he tweeted out some of their sets that they run. And it was really funny to me that AK's running the same exact stuff that he did for Marshall for this Jelly Walker guy um, with some of his screens, his actions in the corner, et cetera. So, no, they're a lot of fun to watch. Um, their issue right now is they've got a loss to Marshall and Rice. One's like 170 in the net, one's like 220. If they'd won both of those, they'd probably be sitting in the top 20 or, excuse me, top 30 in the net with a chance at an auto bid in the Conference USA, which is, is pretty rare. So they've got those two red marks on them right now. But, um, you know, if they, if they went out, I think there's a path for them. If they went out, maybe make it to the conference tournament, they'd have a little wiggle room to lose. They just got to keep it going. They're a lot of fun to watch. KJ's played good at times this year. Um, they, they've got, you know, a lot of transfers as well. He's gone – 700 days without having a high school kid commit to him. AK? Yeah. That's an incredible stat. I was going to uh, I was going to press you on the uh, uh the talking about like what their path is. So you don't think there a an at large bid is not only like I mean obviously it's not a given. You think they're going to have to do some serious work just to get one. I know you work predominantly Ole Miss stuff, but I know you have friends elsewhere. How demoralizing would that be to have a very good basketball program somewhere and you know your only path is, you know, five days in March to get to the end? Yeah. How bad is it? Are you you a proponent of reforming that system in some way? Um, I don't know about that. The fix for them is they're going to move to the AAC, which could be a three to four bid league in a couple years. And so that's going to help them. uh, They've got some facilities there on the way. They've, you know, I think the AAC could help a little bit with recruiting, but, um, you know, it's just life of the one-bid conference. Um, the Conference USA basketball-wise is not great right now. Um, Kermit leaving did not help that either because middle is okay but not great. Um, you know, there, there, there may be wiggle room for them to lose one. It would have to be like a La Tech or a North Texas. Um, but their thing is they're sitting on maybe second or third in the first four out with Lenardi right now. And you, you want to just conservatively say that you're like three spots below that just to feel safe about things uh, from a variance standpoint. So I think they got to keep winning. Uh, they can't lose to any of these teams outside of like the top 100 in that either. Um, but the, yeah, there is a path there and they're, they're very fun, electrifying to play. I think he likes his team. Um, there's some consistency that he'd like to see there though. He is Bracken Ray, former Andy Kennedy staffer, resident Rippy Wright's basketball correspondent. Appreciate the time, dude. This was awesome stuff. An interesting week for Ole Miss ahead, and uh, we will catch up next week. All right. See ya. All right. That's our show. I appreciate you guys making us a part of your day and making it to the end. Got some good stuff coming down the pipe regarding the podcast and uh, some other written stuff we're going to do in the newsletter and rebelgrove.com. Really excited about uh, a couple of things we got in the work. So thanks for tuning in. As always, I hope you guys have a great start to your week. We'll be back on potentially Wednesday, but maybe Thursday. Colin and I are going to be doing our ultimate uh, or our very long annual baseball preview at some point this week. It may be Wednesday. It may be the Friday show, or I might just drop it on Thursday and do Mailbag Friday. So three pods this week, but stay tuned as to when. We'll catch y'all later on this week.